Reading Romans Backwards, Chapter 3 Strong and Weak Perhaps the most significant contextual factor in reading Romans is coming to terms with the identity of the strong and the weak in Romans 14.1-15.13. To anticipate where we are headed, this means the most significant contextual factor is about the believers in Rome learning to be siblings with every other believer. The instructions to the weak and the strong are the core of Paul's lived theology and the aim of the entire letter. That claim changes how we read Romans. Some options. One might consider the strong and the weak, as is the case with persons in the parables of Jesus, as literary figures rather than actual groups in Rome. If so, these literary figures derive more from what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8-10 through than from actual realities in Rome. The length of our passage and the directiveness of the words make this consideration all but impossible. The strong and the weak, then, are real groups at odds with one another. The weak could be Jewish believers and the strong Gentile believers, or perhaps each term includes a mixture. The weak are mostly Jews and the strong mostly Gentiles. Long ago, a case was made not for two, but for five distinct groups in Rome. Weak, judges of the strong. Strong, despisers of the weak. Doubters, to whom the weak and the strong appealed. Weak, who did not judge the strong and strong who did not despise the weak. Dividing the Roman Christians into five groups is too fine of a line to draw, but the general impression of alternative viewpoints is hard to deny. Clearly, there are the weak and the strong, but it is unlikely that everyone declared allegiance to one of two parties. That some strong were stronger than others, or that some weak were weaker than others, is commonsensical, and that there may well have been some undecided is just as reasonable. Simplistic dismissals of such a scheme is not wise. A common mission problem. To define strong and weak, we need to start with Paul's mission, which was to establish churches in the Roman Empire made up of Jews and Gentiles, slaves and the free, males and females, Scythians and barbarians. In the providential plans of God, the church was the body of Christ that expanded Israel's borders to include Gentiles and the one true family of God under the world's one true Lord, King Jesus. Paul observed, in each mission community he established, tensions between what he here calls the weak and the strong. His fear was denominations, one Jewish, one Gentile, and his message was peace among the weak and the strong. There is, then, nothing surprising in the Roman households to discover social tensions between various groups, and often enough, they were between Jewish and Gentile believers. The Bible on their side. The weak, if we assume for the sake of argument that they were a Jewish group of believers in the Roman house churches, had the Bible and history on their side. The point cannot be emphasized enough. How so? Jews believed God had elected them from Abraham on, had formed covenant with them and rescued them from slavery in Egypt, had given them the Torah as their revealed constitution for all of life, had commanded them to circumcise all male covenant members, had gone before them to defeat their enemies, and had given them the land as a place in which to observe the Torah faithfully. When Israel sinned, that same covenant God provided a means of atonement in the sacrificial system, but also, if they did not repent, their God disciplined them and even exiled them, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon. God had given the bold covenant markers, like circumcision and food laws, and these prescriptions in Torah were to be followed faithfully. 
Torah observance, then, was central to Jewish identity because it was so scriptural, and therefore observance was important to the week's own identity, even as believers in Jesus as Messiah. Whether or not one calls this covenantal nomism is not the point, for Torah observance shaped the identity of the week in Rome. If one grew up embracing this narrative of life, and if one lived its theology, and if one thinks Jesus is the Messiah of that narrative, then it is not hard to imagine one will think one is in the right group all along. How could the weak not think they were God's elect? But this identifies the weak with Jewish believers, and we need to establish this now because it is contested. Identifying the weak and the strong The place to begin is 1 Corinthians, where we see these terms, strong and weak. Thus, Paul warns the Corinthians in these terms, But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. 1 Corinthians 8, verse 9. Romans was written at about the same time as 1 Corinthians, but more importantly, Romans was written from either Corinth or its port city, Sancreia. This makes it very unlikely that strong and weak will have radically different meanings in Romans and 1 Corinthians. This leads to a startling point, or to a starting point. The evidence in Romans 14 and 15 is less precise, days, food in general, and the language of 1 Corinthians more precise, food offered to idols. Next, the language of Romans does not substantively contradict the language of 1 Corinthians, even if nuanced differences can be detected. Furthermore, the exhortations of Paul to both congregations focus on tolerance and unity and self-denial, or Christiformity, and the religious worlds of Rome and Corinth were more or less the same to the Jewish eye. Thus, a conclusion. It is most probable that the controversial food of Romans 14-15 was non-kosher food, and I would suggest it is likely that it was food offered to idols and sold in the market. We can't know for sure, but this seems most likely to me. As 1 Corinthians 8-7 puts it, Since some have become so accustomed to idols until now, they still think of the food they eat as food offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. The weak want kosher food, the strong have no such scruples. Eating together is now a problem. Not a lot stands with the starting point, but it seems justifiable. Overall, it makes most sense to see the weak as Jewish believers and the strong as Gentile believers. That is, weak and strong are ethnic labels as well. Yet, the passage just cited might suggest the weak are former pagans who had been so accustomed to idols that eating food offered to idols was participation all over again in idolatry, and it unnerved them spiritually. Hence, one cannot simply assume weak is entirely Jewish, and the language of Romans keeps the door open to seeing weak as not just Jewish. The weak in Romans are weak in faith or in conscience. Either way, weakness then is a matter of faith and conscience and not just ethnicity and Torah observance. The strong then eat anything and everything without scruples. Let's look a little more closely at what Romans says. There are a number of considerations that lead to the conclusion that the weak in Rome are at least predominantly Jewish believers and the strong predominantly Gentile believers. I don't believe Paul ever addresses Jews in general in Romans. His concern is always with fellow followers of Jesus. Remember that the churches began in connection with synagogues in Rome. Remember, too, there are Jewish names in Romans 16. Mary, Andronicus, Junia, Aquila, and possibly Prisca, Herodion, and Rufus, and his mother. Significant households appear to be led by Jewish believers. There are, on the other hand, more Gentile names mentioned than Jewish names in Romans 16. We can add another consideration. In Rome, Jews were well known for avoiding pork, not to mention observance of other laws, like the Sabbath, that landed them on the rough side of ridicule and even expulsion. In addition, one must also consider how this letter is constructed. 
In Romans 1, 1 through 4, there is a strong emphasis on Jews, and I will contend it is stronger than many argue, while Romans 5 through 8 adopts significantly different language and appeals more directly to Gentile believers, which I will argue as well. And one cannot make sense of anything in Romans 9 through 11 without thinking Jew-Gentile relations in the church are at the forefront of Paul's thinking. It would be beyond odd for Paul to get to the lived theology passages at the end of Romans and not have that Jew-Gentile dynamic in play. In support of an ethnic core to strong and weak is also how our larger section ends. It climaxes with a series of quotations from the Old Testament proving the inclusion of Gentiles in fulfillment of the promise to the patriarchs, chapter 15, verses 7 to 13. Paul finishes here because, from 14 verse 1 on, Paul has been talking about the Jew-Gentile issue as a way to address Christian issues. One more consideration. If we recall the discussion about the Edict of Claudius to expel Jewish believers and their likely return in the early days of Nero, and if we date Romans right in that time period, then tension between returning Jewish believers and the now empowered Gentile believers is all but a certainty. What clinches the ethnic core to the weak and the strong label is that the specific issues the weak have are naturally translated into typical halakhic topics and rulings. Notice that Paul says, nothing is unclean in itself, Romans 14.14. He uses this term in Greek koinon three times in this verse, and it can just as easily be translated common, or what Jews today call traif. Nothing is common. Nothing is traif. All foods are kosher. And Paul uses yet another typically Jewish term, clean, katharos in Romans 14.20, or kosher. In fact, Paul says he thinks all foods are clean. What we hear in our passage is not only about food, but also about other Torah observances, sacred days and circumcision. It is all but certain, that, then, that there is an ethnic connection to the term weak. It is not as clear that strong is exclusively Gentile, and more will be said about that below. Some Jewish followers of Jesus were offended by what was available to them as food, and so, like Daniel, went vegetarian. This tension should be expected. Everywhere the gospel went, the issue of food and Sabbath were decisive symbolic markers of faithful observance of the Torah. For a letter to begin on the Jew-Gentile theme and then flow into a long section on Israel's story and the Gentile believers, and then to shift topics and drop that concern only to bring it up at the end of our passage, beggars narrative coherence. Ethnicity, then, is at the heart of both the tension in Rome and the gospel message itself. One's theology and one's ethnicity cannot be segregated, and neither can one's ethnicity and one's identity be separated. There is, then, a dialectical relationship between ethnicity and theology throughout the entire letter. The tension between the groups bubbled over the top of the pot often. The language Paul uses reveals that the strong despise the weak, and that the weak sat in judgment on the strong. Paul's words carry the message well. Those who eat must not despise those who abstain, and those who abstain must not, must not pass judgment on those who eat, for God has welcomed them. Who are you to pass judgment on servants of another? Chapter 14, verses 3 and 4. And in 14.10, why do you pass judgment on your brother or sister? Or you, why do you despise your brother or sister? Josephus tells us that Claudius instructed Jews in Egypt not to despise the religious practices of others, and not to show a contempt of the superstitious observances of other nations, but to keep their own laws only. Lived theology works like this because embodied life is theology. The Strong's language is fierce. The Greek term exo, exo, exo <laughs> it doesn't matter what the word is, means to disdain, to treat someone as having no status or merit or worth, and to perceive someone as beneath one consideration. The weak's language answers back. Greek term krino and means to sit in judgment on someone or something, and has the sense of playing the part of God and rendering a person's condemnation. 
The same kind of language describes the weak here, describing the weak here is used in Romans 2, where the same strong evocations are at work. In both Romans 2 and 14, the act of judging assumes the role of the divine. This verbal competition brings into expression as it also calls into question the lived theology of the strong and the weak. Their life excludes the other. That kind of life is their theology, and it is a life of verbal crucifixion of the other. Both of their takes on the issues are convincing to themselves. The strong are liberated from Torah observance, while the weak are faithful to Torah observance. One suspects the behaviors of the strong are found in the following. Some believe in eating anything, 14.2, and others judge all days to be alike, 14.5, and everything is clean, 14.20. But I hear an echo or more of the same kind of live theology and expressions of Romans 6. Should we continue in sin, 6.1, and do not let sin exercise dominion in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. No longer present your members to sin as instruments of wickedness, 6, 12, and 13. As well as here, should we sin because we are not under law but under grace, 6.15. If the strong eat, the weak abstain, 14.3, even to the point of having to eat only vegetables and avoiding polluted wine. Lived theology for the weak means Torah observance. For the strong, it means liberty. They are fully convinced and completely at odds with one another. Defining weak and strong. It is time to draw the threads together. The weak are Jewish believers who are in the stream of God's election, who know the Torah, who practice the Torah, and still probably attend synagogue, but who sit in judgment on Gentiles, especially the strong in the Christian community in Rome. We will add to these elements as we read Romans backwards, but for now these six points are clear. The strong are predominantly Gentile believers who believe in Jesus as Messiah or King, who do not observe Torah as the will of God for them, and who have condescending and despising attitudes, probably toward Jews, but especially to Jewish believers in Jesus. This understanding of the strong, too, will expand as we read Romans backwards. The tension in Rome cannot be reduced to theological differences. The tension is at the level of lived theology and status. The irony of the strong and the weak in Rome is that both claimed privilege, the weak claimed their covenant heritage, while the strong claimed their higher status in the city of Rome. We can add a singularly important element to our definitions of weak and strong. If the food is the unclean food of the pagan temple, if there is an ethnic reality to the weak, Jewish, and strong, predominantly Gentile, there is also a status issue. Here we move from the claim of privilege to that of power. Romans 15.1 reads in the NRSV, We who are strong ought to put up with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. The terms that deserve some scrutiny are strong, or dunatoi, failings, asthenomata, and weak, adunatoi. The NIV falls in line with the NRSV, but it is the CEB translation that brings us into the thick of the social realities in Rome. We who are powerful need to be patient with the weakness of those who don't have power. Yes, that's right. The term behind the NRSV's strong and behind its weak is a cognate and translated more accurately in the CEB. Paul contrasts the dunatoi, the powerful, and the adunatoi, the unpowerful. The powerful versus the unempowered or disempowered, or, to turn this into spatial categories, those who may well have lived in a home, a domus, and those who most likely lived in apartments, insulae. Dunatoi and adunatoi are status terms in the Roman world, where status was everything. That is, in Rome, one knew the elite, senators, equestrians, from the non-elites, and the competition among the elites was beyond noticeable. 
In fact, around this time, Claudius, who revived the office of censor, whose responsibilities concerned raising the morality and another reviving ancient sacred sites of the city of Rome, had issued a strong edict about respecting those of high status. Along with these was Claudius's persistence on expanding and enhancing citizenship. One has to wonder if perhaps the strong had these Claudian concerns or a threat of their not being able to achieve them in their corner. Notice it is the strong who are told to welcome in chapter 14, 1, 15, 1, and 15, 7. Why? Power and privilege and status and location are on their side. It is the weak who need to be welcomed. The act of the strong welcoming the weak is a Christiform act of crossing boundaries and turning no status into in-Christ status. It is to say, because we are strong and have privilege and power, we will not broker our power to divide the faith community, but we will disempower ourselves to empower each sibling at the table and so live out the gospel of Christ. To summarize now, the weak are predominantly Jewish believers who are in the stream of God's election, who know the Torah, who practice the Torah and still probably attend synagogue, but who sit in judgment on Gentiles, especially the strong in the Christian community in Rome, even though they have no status or power. We will add to these elements as we read Romans backwards, but for now these five points are clear. The strong are predominantly Gentiles who believe in Jesus as Messiah or King, who do not observe Torah as the will of God for them, and who have condescending and despising attitudes, probably toward Jews, but especially to Jewish believers in Jesus, and all of this is wrapped up in the superior higher status of the strong in Rome. Another item comes next. Paul is among them, and this slightly reconfigures the ethnic connection for strong. What about Paul, strong or not? Attempting to assign Paul to weak or strong is worth our effort. If Paul is strong, then his language about the weak borders on patronizing and at least smacks of bias and description. It is not possible to call out someone as weak as a compliment. If Paul is strong, then he has taken sides, and it appears he has done just that. First, his working principle stated in 14.14 and 14.20, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, and everything is indeed clean, is characteristic of the strong, not the weak. Second, at 15.1, Paul includes himself among the strong when he says, we who are strong. Perhaps most noticeable is that Paul's posture toward halakhic rulings and Torah observance is one of tolerance, not observance or endorsement. To say it is a matter of personal conviction, faith, or conscience, and to say that whichever view a person takes is done before God, is the lived theology not of the weak, but of the strong. One might add here, too, that handing this letter over to Phoebe, a pagan convert who, I must assume, was on Paul's side, is to hold up as a model a Gentile believer. Again, Paul's grounding for his arguments is not, the Torah says. Rather, he speaks of God's welcome in 14.3, of living before the Lord in 14.7-9, of God, not humans, being the final judge in these matters in 14.10-12, of avoiding all stumbling blocks for one another in 14.13-23, of the kingdom being comprised of not food and drink, but joy in the, in the spirit in 1417, of peace being the arbiter in 1419, and, once again, of decisions on food and days and drink and Torah observance being a matter of personal conviction, and he exhorts them to make up their minds was not to be in a doubtful state in 1422 and 23. What matters to Paul is his mission to spread the gospel about Jesus to in the Roman Empire and to bring into one unified family both Jewish and Gentile believers. His lived theology emerges from his mission. Paul sides with the strong on at least the dividing issue in the Roman house churches. He does not think Torah observance is necessary for the lived theology of the Christians in Rome. 
Yes, Paul is an equal criticism kind of apostle. He has harsh words for both strong and weak, and encouraging words for both strong and weak. What is noticeable for Paul, and this is one element of Paul that baffles me when I hear people say nasty things about Paul's teachings, is this. He does not expect everyone to be on the same page. If the weak want to avoid pork, that's fine with Paul. If the strong want to eat pork offered to idols, that's fine too. If there is anything distinct about Paul's lived theology, it is right here. He may be strong, and he may think Torah observance is not necessary even for Jews who believe in Jesus, but he does not demand that all Christians have the same lived theology when it comes to Torah observance, which means what he is against is demanding uniformity on this issue of Torah observance. The operative term for Paul, and we will get to this below, are welcome one another to the table as siblings. The whole letter is found in that imperative. <laughs>